Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor for my podcast, as well as the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports, music, and baseball. With just two taps on your phone, you can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event, and you can enter that event just using your phone. No paper tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. And don't forget to check out my fairly new website, TheRinger.com, for the very best in sports, tech, and pop culture coverage. And don't forget about The Ringer Podcast Network, which features Keeping It 1600, The Watch, Channel 33, Shack House, and our Ringer shows for the NFL, NBA, and MLB. And finally, don't forget about my new television show, Any Given Wednesday, which runs every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on HBO and reruns on HBO Now, HBO Go, and HBO On Demand. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow staff writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello. Hello. So we're not going to do our usual thing and call the scout who signed Connor Gillespie or talk to the guy who started a Twitter account last night to tell the world that he'd handed his rally towel to Derek Law right before the Giants took the lead against Chapman or interview that fellow who awkwardly holds the headset set up while the umps call New York for replay review, although I would like to talk to that guy. Or even do a deep dive into what happens to the Red Sox and Rangers ALDS champions gear when those teams get eliminated. Actually, I found out what it is. It gets shipped overseas to yeah. people who need clothes. So it's that's true. nice. That's the that's the silver lining, I guess, if you're a Red Sox or Rangers fan. We are just going to talk about the playoffs today. We're going to talk about some series that have concluded. We're going to talk about some series that are still ongoing, some things we've noticed, some controversies that have come up, and we'll just see where this takes us. So it's just going to be a a State of October episode. So I figured we can maybe start with the most recent game we both saw, which was Giants-Cubs. It was a back-and-forth Game 3 affair on Sunday night in San Francisco, and uh, there were many twists and turns. It looked like the Cubs were about to sweep and finish this thing off, and then Connor Gillespie did Connor Gillespie things again, this time against Aroldis Chapman, and in the end, the Giants ended up winning, confirming all of your fears and suspicions about Taylor Swift and even mm-hmm. years and conspiracies. This is crossed over to the point where one of our culture editors, Amanda Dobbins, has uh, has started <laughs> watching baseball for the first time in her life. So this yes. is, if for no other reason than that, it's it's big news here at uh, here in Ringerland. Yeah, right. The MLB Slack is buzzing with further updates to the conspiracy. Anthony Rizzo is a Taylor Swift fan. What does that mean for the theory that Taylor Swift releasing an album means the Giants win the World Series? Anyway, I think that the Cubs had a commanding 2-0 lead. They are still in the driver's seat in this series. They still seem like the superior team. But the Giants keep doing October Giants things. So until that stops happening, it's hard to rule them out. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing to me is that I 
always have Twitter open when I'm I'm watching a game like this, and the self-selected, very rational group of, of baseball fans and <laughs> and writers that I follow appears to believe wholeheartedly in omens. Like yeah. <laughs> when Jake Arrieta hit that that home run, like a three nothing lead is by no means insurmountable, even even in a pitcher's park, even against Jake Arietta, but everybody just was like, yeah, this is over. It was, you know, even your bullshit was, was fun while it lasted. And mm-hmm. to a certain extent, well, I'd say to a great extent, cause I I'm buying all into all this metaphysics hook line and sinker. It's just interesting to see how quickly everybody's willing to abandon rationality when it comes to, comes to these things. <laughs> Yeah, if this were a mainstream media-led narrative, then we might be having a backlash against it. We might be dismissing even your magic. But I think it's just fun, right? I'm, we're not really taking it seriously, although the longer I, I, I think happens. it reflects poorly on us that it's not a mainstream media narrative to, well, <laughs> to this extent. Maybe it is now. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's it's been fun to watch the Giants win the way they win. I'm sure people are sick of seeing the Giants win year after year, but they've done it in a fairly entertaining way. I mean, they've now fought off 10 consecutive elimination games, which is an admirable achievement. Preposterous even... <laughs> is what that <laughs> really... is. Yeah. I mean, even if the Giants haven't really been the best team in baseball, or at least based on regular season results over the course of this, you know, quasi-dynasty, they have managed to do things in the playoffs that are improbable and fun to watch. And sometimes it's just Madison Bumgarner being dominant. And sometimes it's Connor Gillespie having improbable hits and hitting the first triple off of Aroldis Chapman ever by a left-handed hitter or whoever the hero of the day is. And Gillespie has been the hero lately. But your boy Joe Panic, your pick for NLCS MVP, had the the big game winning hit last night. He came through one series too early, but I, yeah. I just hope he stays hot through the through the next series because obviously the Cubs. Yeah, I'm gonna make this prediction twelve hours before the not even twelve hours, nine hours before the next game starts. Oh yeah, the you know the Giants are gonna win game win games four and five and, and go all the way through. So I'm right. gonna ask you to make another prediction. Okay. <laughs> Over under uh 0.5 more appearances for Madison Bumgarner. So if he comes back in game five he would be on what, like two days rest or uh, something? Yes. Right. And which is uh, an if... eternity for a bullpen appearance <laughs> for him. Yeah, I mean if there is a game five I think it's almost certain that he will pitch, probably, right? Yeah. Because who who would be starting that game for San Francisco? You, it could be either Cueto or Samarja on regular rest, right? So so, so Cueto, <laughs> yeah. So you're you're basically asking me if I think that the Giants will win one more game before that opportunity arises. So will they get to Game Five? And I'd have to bet against that. I think I think the Cubs are still the superior team here, so. If we get to game five, yes, I think he'll almost certainly make an appearance. But if we don't get to game five, he can't. And I would still bet against getting to game five. I, have we learned anything about these two teams in this series? Or has it just been Giants and Cubs, Giantsing and Cubsing? Yeah, I really feel like it's it's the latter. I mean, yeah. anything that we think about being re- revelatory, I don't know, like we learned that Javi Baez is a really good defensive infielder, but, you know, we knew that already. You know, <laughs> right. we knew that Connor Gillespie, you know, I don't know that we've learned anything <laughs> other than he's having a really good week. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I think watching their defense in action has been maybe somewhat illustrative in that, you know, I watched a fair amount of Cubs games this year, but it does seem like they keep finding new defensive tactics, mm-hmm. which is uh, surprising because there's only so much you can do on defense in baseball. But the Cubs keep coming up with new things like the play earlier in this series where Anthony Rizzo basically played pitcher's helper while yeah. Javi Baez played first base. And of course, they switched gloves. And then there was a kind of a choreographed pickoff throw from David Ross. And that worked out perfectly. I mean, the Cubs defense has been one of the most fascinating stories all season long, and it really came to the fore in the first couple games of the series when they shut out the Giants and then held them to two runs. And it's just I've been trying to figure out what it is all season long because clearly the Cubs have good defenders. I mean, their players are good at fielding, so it makes sense that they're a good fielding team, but they are such an outlier that it seems like there must be something else going on. You know, they they allowed a, a low 250s batting average on balls in play this year, which is just insane. Like the difference between them and the number two team in BABIP allowed was as big as the difference between the number two team and the 27th best team. It, it's like adjusted for era. It's maybe the best BABIP allowed of all time. And you look at the fielders and you think, yeah, those guys are good. You know, this should yeah, be a good it's... defensive team, but you don't think necessarily it should be doing something that's just completely off the charts. So I've been trying to figure out what Cubs defensive magic is exactly. And I don't know that it's just those occasional little plays where they manage to get an out that some other team wouldn't get because of, you know, Anthony Rizzo staying on the bag or being able to scoop something or Javi Baez making a nice tag. It doesn't seem like that alone would be able to account for this team being just miles better at hit prevention than anyone else in baseball. Yeah, I I mean, I think you can make an argument that they go they've got three individual defenders who are who have an argument for being the best in baseball at their positions in Russell Baez and and Hayward, unless I'm Uh missing some of the obvious. And then they, you know, they shift them a lot. And then, but even then, like you're, you're moving your defenders around a lot too. Like Contreras plays multiple positions, Zobris, obviously Brian. So you'd think that you get, you'd lose a little bit because you would necessarily be having your, having individual defenders playing their second or third best defensive positions. But it's, you know, it's not like outside the realm of possibility that, that Joe Madden and, and this front office could find and exploit some sort of hidden advantage before anybody else gets to it. Yeah. And that's been my theory because the interesting thing is that they have the fewest shifts of any team in the majors, which is, Odd on the surface because Joe Madden was a shift pioneer, of course, and he isn't really shifting that much less often than he did in Tampa Bay except for one year when he was there. But everyone else has just started shifting much, much more, and he has not. And he's been asked about it, and he's – both he and Theo have given kind of cagey comments about how, oh, well, maybe the shift doesn't work so well anymore because guys are hitting the other way or trying to avoid the shift. And I, I haven't seen that much league-wide evidence that that's true. It just seems like they're being somewhat circumspect about why they aren't shifting. And I would guess that that has something to do with some sort of subtle positioning magic that they have figured out, maybe yeah, that... based on StatCast data of some sort. I've tried to look into it. I haven't been able to get my hands on the information yet, but 
That's my best guess. Yeah, my theory would be less that they're not shifting than that they're somehow doing it in a way that isn't immediately obvious to yeah right to observers right. They might not be over shifting or you know shifting in the sense that it gets classified as more guys on the right side of the infield or or that sort of thing, but. They are probably moving their guys in such a way that they are more likely to prevent hits. And there was a story early in April about how Dexter Fowler, I think, had been moved back because of positioning data. And he was always a guy who had poor defensive stats. And this year he was positioned differently and he had better defensive stats. And it's not necessarily the sort of thing that would jump off the screen, especially because via the screen, you can't always tell where someone is positioned until the ball is hit to him. And and even then you're catching him kind of in mid sprint. So it would be hard to say if the Cubs fielders are, you know, playing more shallow or playing more to the right or to the left or adjusting more from batter to batter without having that data. But I have to assume that there's something going on there. And, you know, if if you were to ask me what kind of the the inefficiency that's being exploited today or the new money ball or whatever the cliched way to describe that is, I would guess that, you know, a year or two down the line, we discover that the Cubs cracked the positioning code before anyone else. And if so, that's probably bad news for baseball because everyone else will copy them and then there will be no more hits in baseball yeah. allowed. But for now, the Cubs are the one team that's managing to do that. I, I was going to ask two questions, one of which was exactly that. Yeah. This has got to be bad for the game. Like, you know, I'm very much an old man yells at cloud type when it comes to like the actual gameplay, but I feel like a higher BABIP would be more entertaining in that it would incentivize it would create more um more uncertainty in the confrontations between fielders and base runners and it would you know incentivize something other than just going for strikeouts and home runs so is this this has got to be bad for baseball right yeah i mean if that's what's going on here i appreciate it as an intellectual exercise i i admire that they have figured this thing out if they have figured this thing out You know, it makes a cool story when one team is doing it and no one else has caught on yet. And it's sort of like, you know, you go back to 2008 when the Rays managed to turn their team around by overhauling the defense. And in that case, it it wasn't positioning or something. It was just getting good defenders, which Mm -hmm. at the time, not every team bothered to do. It was just, hey, we'll get guys who can field and they'll be cheap and no one pays for defense. So we'll do that and we'll turn the team around in one winter. And they did that. And, you know, everyone appreciated it mostly after the fact. So I, I assume the same sort of thing will happen here. And, and yeah, I mean, if every team is allowing a Cubs-level BABIP, that seems like it would be bad for baseball. Yeah, for, exactly. for now, it's fun <laughs> if it's just one team managing to do it. And I look forward to trying to figure out how exactly they are doing it. But, you know, and I wrote earlier this year that it seemed like Cubs pitchers have some ability to induce weaker contact. Maybe that's playing a a part in this and maybe part of it is just a little bit of luck and bloopers not falling in and that sort of thing. But over a full season, it's just been so extreme that I have to think there's something going on here that is lurking just beneath the surface. But it's been fun to watch. As in so many cases, it's probably a little from column A, a little from column B. Of course. The second question is Baez and Rizzo switching gloves. How necessary do you think that is? 
<laughs> well, I don't think it's necessary for them. It seems to be necessary in that the rule book kind of calls for a first baseman to have a first baseman's glove, and, and Madden was challenged on that. I think it was maybe Clint Hurdle or some other manager protested because Rizzo switched positions but didn't switch gloves. And so now I think it's just a, a preemptive move to prevent the other manager from objecting. I don't think he would be unable to play pitcher's helper with a first baseman's glove or that Baez would be unable to play first with a second baseman's glove. Yeah. It just seems like, oh, you know, this is the cool thing we're doing. So we're just going <laughs> to rub it in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, but, I mean, but you'll see, you'll see first baseman, you know, extreme, you know, charge bunts, maybe not to, to that extreme. I just, I don't know. Yeah. I, I would almost rather him have the bigger glove that close because somebody's going to slug bunt and take out his eye at some point. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's like the silly position in cricket, which is where you, you line up directly in front of the batsman. I, was just, to... I remember you and Sam having some yes. sort of conversation about about a guy standing right in front of the... Yes, of they, the they call it the silly position, which is purely because it it's not like named after some English guy named, you know, Reginald Silly or something. It's, it's just, it's named the silly position because you'd have to be silly to stand directly in front of the batsman, and yet... That does happen in cricket. So the Cubs are kind of bringing silly position into baseball. And as you mentioned, Randy Gisarli wrote a good piece for The Ringer last Friday. You should all check it out about the Cubs' flexibility. And we've seen that in action. What did they? They had like three different catchers last night and four yeah. different corner outfielders. And, you know, they just rotate guys from position to position. And, and you're right. You would think that, A, you'd be putting guys out of position to some extent. And, B, there might be some penalty. I think Russell Carlton at Baseball Prospectus has shown that there's perhaps some defensive penalty associated with switching positions frequently. And if that's the case, that hasn't hurt them at all. Maybe it's helped them keep guys fresh. Maybe that has kind of counteracted anything else that they've been able to rest people and sub people in. And not all of their position players have had to play every inning of every game. But that also makes them more entertaining to watch, even if it's not, you know, Travis Wood playing left field or, or something even more experimental. It's uh, it's still fun to just watch the carousel of Cubs position players. Yeah. All right. So we want to give a quick Hunger Games style salute to two teams that have been eliminated already, the Red Sox and the Rangers. And you wrote about the Rangers series. And so we can we can talk a bit about that. I think, you know, they came into the playoffs as kind of the consensus weakest team, at least among people who were studying their run differential and their base runs record and their third order record and all of these adjusted ways we have to evaluate how good a team actually was. And the Rangers, even though they led the AL in wins and had a big division lead, barely outscored their opponents all season. And so I wrote, I think, that, you know, there was as fun as that story was, there was no real reason to expect it to continue into the playoffs. I think the danger, though, is just to sort of say, well, yeah, what we expected happened and the Rangers were not very good at outscoring their opponents during the regular season. And so it turns out they were pretty bad at yeah. outscoring their opponent in the postseason. 
yes, but it didn't really happen the way that anyone would have expected that to happen. Exactly. And I mean, that's the sort of thing that when you you shorten the bench a little bit, you shorten the, the back of the rotation in the playoffs, like run differential. I don't know. It's, I wonder the usefulness of clinging to something like run differential or third order wins with a best of five series. Like, yeah, right. they're, certainly they're close enough that, that they could easily take three of five from the Blue Jays. And like you said, they went out in an unexpected way that is at the same time not all that interesting to write about. Yeah. Like they, <laughs> you know, they had these two great starting pitchers and you can argue, you know, I think they were the two best starters in that series. Mm-hmm. And certainly you could argue that, you know, maybe Aaron Sanchez was better than Darvish this year or something like that. But they need to to win at least one game at home with Darvish or Hamels on the mound, and both of them got just absolutely shelled. And yeah. if you don't even get out of the gate, then that great sinker balling bullpen or the fact that uh, they've got a little bit of flexibility on how they or on how uh, manager Jeff Bannister could rewrite the lineup, like all those things just go out the window. Yeah, right. And uh, if anything, we expected the Rangers postseason model to be better than the regular season model because they could give such a high percentage of their innings to Darvish and Hamels. And they did that, and the plan just completely backfired for for no clear reason. And I, I think you could kind of look at Hamels' start batter by batter and say, well, you know, it, it, this could have gone very differently, very easily, if this ball hadn't gotten by this guy by a few inches, and that hadn't happened. You could you could kind of come up with an alternate history of that start where Cole Hamels ends up pitching pretty well, probably. But yeah. that didn't happen. And when your two aces get shelled, it's pretty hard to recover from that in a five-game series. So that's that. And of course, they were eliminated in a one-run loss, which was fitting for the uh, team. Yeah, that just one one-run game all season long. But, but yeah, I mean, I don't think we can just look at it and say, oh, yeah, we were right. The Rangers' regular season record wasn't indicative of how good they are. And so the, the Blue Jays completely trounced them. You know, even if the Rangers were, say, a true talent 500 team or something, we wouldn't necessarily have expected a sweep and a just a commanding victory by Toronto. But in the wake of that victory, do you say that the Blue Jays are now the pennant favorites? Or did we learn anything about the Indians in their own sweep of the Red Sox that makes us think that they are perhaps better equipped for October than we feared they would be when they lost two of their best starters in the weeks leading up to the postseason. Yeah, that's a. I think the Indians are might be the one team, at least in the American League, that we did learn something about because we learned the absolute extremes to which Terry Francona will go to to right. throw his best reliever, you know, to use Andrew Miller in that fireman role that that you've written about. I like that he did that in Game Three, by the way, and not hold anything back you know just like to go all into to win now rather than yeah saving something for a game four or five that might not happen yeah at the same time though you know if that backfires if that uh i think it was xander bogart's line drive falls or if um you know something breaks differently in those last couple innings you know maybe miller and allen aren't available in game four and and you're already looking back to you know you're already needing seven or eight innings from trevor bauer so it's it's a, a similar 
situation in which they've got a fairly deep bullpen, but they've only really got two starting pitchers right now. So I guess I'd I'd make the Indians slight favorites, but it's a it's an interesting matchup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, what Francona is doing is just uh, I mean, if the Cubs are in a class of themselves in a run prevention sense, then Francona seems to be in a class of his own in a managerial sense, at least stylistically. We've seen this postseason already, the the closer in the tie game on the road justification, or or at least uh, that seems to be why Buck Showalter didn't use Zach Britton in the wildcard game. Maybe it was why Jeff Bannister didn't use Sam Dyson in the last game of that series. Not that that was, you know, that yeah, terrible that a decision. They, they, yeah, right. they could have, that could have gone either yes. way because um, Bush and Keller pitched okay, even though, like, if Francona was managing the managing the Rangers, Dyson definitely would have come in with that bases loaded situation in the in the sixth, right. though perhaps it's it's unfair just because Terry Francona is doing it now to, to expect <laughs> all major league managers to start managing that way. Well, that's the question, right? Because as we just mentioned, baseball is a copycat sport. If someone does something and it works well for them, then often we see other teams adopt that idea. So here we have Terry Francona using Andrew Miller in a way that few or no other relievers are used right now. And this is kind of the the way that sabermetricians have been calling for people to use bullpen guys since the fireman model went out of style mm-hmm. in the 80s. And here it is again, and it's working incredibly well. And when Francona was on this podcast a, a month or two ago, I asked him, if he thought this would catch on. And and I asked him if the Indians have a big October moment where I think I said Andrew Miller comes in in the sixth and shuts down the other team. As it turned out, he came in in the fifth and the first time and then the sixth the second time. And so if you're another team watching this and seeing it work so well, and and of course, you know, every managerial decision that we either praise or condemn often didn't really make the difference in the game. You know, the, the right move backfires many times. The wrong move works out many times. Often you're just talking about a, a, a few points of win expectancy when we're talking about bullpen decisions or pinch hitting decisions or whatever it is. And we get so frustrated by them because they sort of seem like unforced errors, you know, like even if even if they didn't really determine the outcome of the game, there was no reason not to do the best thing. So that's why we get so worked up about them. But if you're the manager of another team watching Terry Francona do this and of course, Francona said when I talked to him that, you know, he has Andrew Miller and not everyone has Andrew Miller. And Andrew Miller's not only perhaps the best relief pitcher in the game, but also is maybe uniquely willing to be used this way. So yeah. you need an Andrew Miller to be able to pull off the Andrew Miller strategy. But maybe you start minting more Andrew Millers who see his success and see how he is praised for his unselfishness in, in the way that he's deployed. And obviously, Andrew Miller made plenty of money as a setup man. So he got paid without getting saves necessarily. And so you wonder whether this will at least normalize it to the extent that other great pitchers will say, oh, this is a way that I could be used. I don't necessarily have to be used only in safe situations. Yeah. And this was, uh, you know, when Bill James was writing 15 years ago about about this. He was talking about 
the fireman role, you know, he didn't address this directly, but, you know, instead of trying to save 50 games, somebody who was used in that situation, you know, instead of for 53 at saves and maybe 30 other appearances like that, someone who's used 60 times for 100 innings over the course of the season might not save 50 games, but he might save 20 and win 15 or 20 more. So that yeah. could be a an avenue as well. But you know, the other thing with Miller is that he is a, a reliever for reasons that a lot of relievers aren't like you go to the bullpen because of your platoon splits or your command and or or um or you can't hold up for for a certain workload and miller went to the bullpen because he was he was supposed to be a, a starting pitcher obviously but he had command problems and and he had a, a platoon split as a, a lefty and those things have sort of just gone away now he, he's he walks uh, batters as infrequently as any relief pitcher in the league. So yeah. you need somebody who has Miller's ability to hold up to a bigger workload like that, too, which just, right. you know, it's not even the willingness. You know, it's the the capability. There might not be, I don't know, maybe half a dozen pitchers in baseball as well suited to that role as Miller, which might not be a, a good reason not to do it. It just drives home your, your point, I guess. Yeah, definitely easier said than done, or, or at least easier said than done overnight. But if this does continue throughout the playoffs, if the Indians make a really deep run here and do so without Salazar and without Carrasco and everyone looks at this and says that Andrew Miller is your postseason super weapon whether or not that's actually the case I think other teams will want that guy and in the way that we saw every team want to build a Royals bullpen with you know three dominant closers at the back of the pen maybe we'll see every team want an Andrew Miller and if every team wants an Andrew Miller then Maybe they develop their own Andrew Millers over the period of a few years. You know, they take their best relief pitching prospect and they just use him that way from the minor leagues up and you make more of him that way or other relief pitchers just become more willing to be used that way because they see that Andrew Miller gets all these accolades for being used that way. So one way or another, I would expect that if this does continue, we will see more of it in the future. And this is the one thing I'm going to, for those of you playing the drinking game at home, you know, I'm going to bring up college baseball, but this is like the <laughs> one tactical area in which college is ahead of the pros because they still do use the the fireman role it you know the the closer is a multi-inning guy in in most college programs and they're i mean they can get away with that because usually they're only playing four or five games a week so if you save your closer for a three out save then you're just gonna you know he's gonna throw i don't know like 20 innings all year and and at that point why bother but you know there there are people who have done that kind of thing before who are popping up in, in major league bullpens all over the place Right. So Andrew Miller managed to snuff the life out of the Red Sox. And just as earlier, I was saying that, you know, we can't really crow about the the Rangers getting swept and say, oh, we were right about their quality, because if we do that, then we have to eat crow about the Red Sox being swept after talking about their quality. And I thought the Red Sox were the best AL team coming into the playoffs. I wrote an article to that effect and they exited very quickly. And maybe it's just similar to the Rangers series where you say, well, the the Rangers had the worst starting pitcher ERA ever in a division series sweep, I think. So that's why they lost. Well, 
the Red Sox had good players who played poorly also. <laughs> you know, they had Porcello look vulnerable at least for one inning. They had David Price look shaky again. We'll get into that a little bit later. And their vaunted and deservedly vaunted lineup just didn't really produce. You know, the, the guys who were great all season, some of the best hitters in baseball were not the best hitters over the course of three games yeah. against the Indians. So that's that. Perhaps because they faced Andrew Miller for a disproportionate <laughs> number of, of their key innings. <laughs> that had something to do with it. Yeah. So I, I don't know if there's anything else to, to say about it. It doesn't really change my opinion of, of who the Red Sox were. It just reinforces what we usually say about what can happen in a three-game series. And you wrote about David Ortiz going out this way, right? Yeah. What, did, what did you say? I thought it was interesting that like he that we didn't get the the one last clutch moment. I think that was the only thing that insofar as, as I was disappointed in the, the Red Sox, they didn't even need to win the series necessarily for, for him to have one of those moments. I, you know, it just, it just felt like he had one more in him and it was just a little weird, even though this is the player he's been for 15 years that, you know, he was lifted for a pinch hitter. And like, even if the Red Sox completed that comeback against a, a totally gassed uh, Cody Allen in the ninth, like it looked like they were going to do, then Ortiz was going to have no part in that. It just, that just sort of, it felt a little weird. So yeah, you know, it's, I, I don't know what you, like you said, like, I don't know that what you can really say about the, the Red Sox in this three game series, you know, there's no three games, you know, they, they play dozens of, of these three game series throughout the, the season. And I, doubt that any anyone but the most diehard fans can uh can pick out an individual result from an individual series like this is just such a a small slice of you know one bad inning by rick porcello can can right. throw the whole thing into into turmoil so on on that level like it's it's a little difficult to write big analytical pieces about the playoffs Right. And I mean, if if we were deprived of a one last David Ortiz clutch moment in October, we maybe that's the way that the universe balances out David Ortiz having the best last season ever. Yeah, I compared him to Willie Stargell in uh -huh. 1979. And you know, Ortiz was way better uh, in 2016 than Stargell was in uh, in 79, even though Stargell uh, ended up winning the MVP, and I don't think that Ortiz will. But that was just sort of the poetic way to to go out. But you know, at the same time, maybe there were other great last seasons that nobody talks about because they didn't end in a World Series. So right, and I think even without Ortiz, this team will probably be back. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll of, be just fine. <laughs> yeah, a lot of very young, talented players who we will probably be seeing in several Octobers to come. All right, so let us take a quick break, and we will be right back to talk about sliding rules and uh, controversy over what constitutes being safe and some aces who have struggled in the postseason. Hey, guys, this is Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast feed, Ringer University, where Bang Glicksman and I will be hosting a Tuesday college football show, and Chris Vernon, the newest member of the Ringer family, will be hosting a Friday gambling preview. We're going to recap the biggest action, preview the most compelling games to come, and talk about all things college football. Make sure to subscribe now to Ringer University on iTunes or wherever else you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. Okay, so one thing that 
postseason baseball does. It ratchets up the stakes. It makes teams more willing to call for replays, perhaps. There's no reason to save them, and the outcome of every game and every play matters so much that teams are willing to use all of those replays that they might not bother to use during the regular season. And so what we have seen a spotlight on this October is sliding plays and it seems now as if it's just obligatory if someone slides into second or third base and there is a a tag perhaps applied or not applied there is almost always going to be a replay because why not and because we've learned that there's really no way to tell in real time whether a player actually stays on the base for the duration of his slide or not and so whereas pre-replay All that really mattered was that you beat the throw to the base and you didn't obviously get tagged before you touched the base. Now you have to maintain contact with the bag at all times. And this has been a a very divisive issue. I I don't know exactly what the split is. I've seen some online polls where it seems to be something close to 50-50, but I think probably the voices are louder on the this is not the intended purpose of replay side of the discussion. So where do you stand on this? Has replay been taken too far in this instance? I'm out on replay. This is entirely. Yeah, just Yeah, it's just so much more trouble than it's worth. And like we saw, I'm like 94 percent sure that there's uh, an article out in the in the Grantland archives from like 2013 or 14 somewhere where they're talking about replay and, you know, instituting replay. And I said, this is how they're going to get it wrong. And they got it wrong by instituting the the manager's challenge like i just really want to slap the nfl in the face for for making (laughs) truth a tactical weapon like you know and so many of these these play close plays on the bases like if they just had a they needed a dedicated replay ump to to travel with each crew and they need to make the standard of proof uh preponderance of the evidence not you know definitive proof that the umpires were wrong like we need to take this out of the hands of the managers and we need to worry less you know we need to worry i think from a humanitarian perspective about umpires feelings they do a very difficult job that is uh integral to the success of major league baseball as a competitive and entertainment enterprise but like they need to suck it up if they get overturned and we need to be more willing to overturn them when a call looks you know we're like 70 percent sure that a call on the field is wrong with the the benefit of slow-mo and and uh zoom and i don't know jeff passan was talking about like ultra high def cameras that mlb is, is thinking about instituting just like this was so it was so easy to screw this up and they did exactly what what you would do if if you wanted to screw this up. And I just remember sitting in the in the press box in in Houston last year during that crazy eighth inning between the between the Royals and the Astros, where Terrence Gore was. Yeah, you know, you know, replay is is being implemented badly when it's used to call Terrence Gore out on a <laughs> on a steal attempt. And at right. that moment, I was just like, this is. Like, obviously, he bounced off the bag because of the sheer force of kinetic energy that that's involved in a, a grown man sliding into a bag. But like, this is not how it, how it was supposed to be. And I got just so 
you know, I aged 15 years in that press box that afternoon. It's <laughs> And you are already 60 or so at heart. Uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't go quite as blanket anti-replay. I agree that it seemed like a mistake maybe when the manager's challenge structure was implemented. I thought it would have been nice just to have that eye in the sky constantly monitoring the game and saying, no, you messed up and just checking every play. And maybe there would be some logistical problems with that. You know, it would be tough, I guess, if there was no replay, you know, initiated on the field. And so you'd be there in the ballpark, never knowing whether a play was about to be overturned or you'd have to have constant communication between the umpires on the field and the umpires in New York. Still, I thought that was a better system than just relying on the managers to challenge and so we've seen some unintended consequences. I still – I wouldn't go back. If I had to choose between the current system and no replay, I would definitely choose the current system. I forget what game it was, but one of the recent postseason games, there was a, a replay review on a slide at home plate earlier in the game, maybe maybe in the first inning even. might have been Trevor Bauer pitching. And – Two runs scored, and, and the second runner was ruled safe on the side, but he was out, and he was tagged very skillfully on his way across the plate, and replay review showed that, and the call was overturned, and now there was suddenly only one run scoring instead of two, and, and that's just huge. You know, that's just a, a massive swing and win expectancy, and and that's just a clear case where you can point to oh, that run would have counted and would have incorrectly counted under the old system, and now it doesn't, and that's more fair and, and more just, and I like that. But there are these edge cases where it's hard to draw the line on what exactly should be overturned, and it, it does seem as if, you know, for a while it was, what was the uh, the play like in the first week or two of full replay that that kept getting like the the transfer play in the yeah, outfield yeah, yeah. like you know guys were catching balls or or at least what we would consider catching balls traditionally and and it was being ruled as non-catches because the the ball was coming out of their glove or whatever and it was turning into you know the the football debate about what is a catch and how that has been endlessly litigated in football replays and no one wanted that and, and entirely so... unsatisfyingly too they've been yes, doing replay right. in, in the nfl for like 10 years now and they still don't know what's a catch i think they know exactly. less about what's a catch now than and they're doing this in college <laughs> football now with targeting and yeah. like the the most frustrating thing is the nhl used to do replay just perfectly like they were they the the coaches were out of it entirely they looked at every goal and that you know they would take they were constantly on the phone to the nerve center in toronto about you know is this a goal and they'd have an answer in seconds and now the coaches can cha challenge stuff and it's just total lawlessness and i but you were in the middle of a point before yeah, i got well, angry again <laughs> well that rule was clarified and so after that initial awkwardness and and growing pains that hasn't been an issue so in theory i think we could do the same with the sliding rule which is now what is causing the most controversy and there is a part of me that just wants to be very simplistic about this and say 
you have to be on the base. That's the the rule of baseball. It's like, you know, Cal Ripken on TBS was going back and forth with Ron Darling about this the other day. And Ripken was basically just reducing it down to that very simple argument. You have to be on the base. If you're not on the base and you get tagged, you're out. You want to hit the guy who makes that argument. Like, that's just... I did always find it frustrating in the pre-replay era when someone would make a great slide and he'd get his hand in there and he'd be called out because the ball beat him to the bag and that was all the umpire could really see in real time. And so that was the basis of his call was the ball there first. And so... In theory, at least, I like the idea that you have to be in contact with the bag and you get credit for being in contact with the bag. And so I like that aspect of it. I think it's also a virtue of the system that it doesn't force the umpire to make a judgment call, really. It's just, was he touching the bag or not? And even if that can be frustrating at times, at least you're not making him, you know, make some sort of subjective judgment. It's, was he in contact with the base? And usually you can tell that based on the replay, and if you can't, you you don't overturn it anyway. So I like that aspect of it, and there are things about it that I don't like as well. Yeah, it's not—my argument with it is not that we get—like, replay has more of those bouncing off the bag slide— calls then calls like uh like the denard span catch uh in extra innings last last night like we get more we get a greater percentage of calls right now than we did uh yeah. before replay was instituted but the ones that are wrong just seem to or they're iffy or seem like rules lawyering just they just undermine the overall public trust in the system and that's this is i can't believe i'm saying this but like on some level i almost care more about whether we accept the outcome than whether it's actually right or not, uh-huh. which is just a terrifying <laughs> thing to hear come out of my own mouth from a political perspective. But like, this is not, you know, there's a whole column bouncing around in my head that I was going to write if nothing interesting happened on Sunday night about, about this. But I just, I don't want to see him chase. I don't want to see him chase every loophole with a new rule every off season. Cause when I was in college, I was in uh, student senate for a summer or for uh, for a year, and the previous election there had been all sorts of election code violations about where you can distribute flyers or campaign or whatever. And this was a to- this was a hugely contentious issue that they spent like there were there were revotes and and runoffs and and uh, administration got involved and so when i showed up in the senate and got my committee assignment it like we were tasked with rewriting the election code and we spent 8 months just sitting around thinking of all these outrageous bizarre unrealistic scenarios that we were trying to get out in front of and write down, you know, black letter law about. And it was one of the dumbest things that I've ever spent a serious (laughs) amount of time on in my life. And I came out of this thinking, like, instead of black letter law, we just need, I'm like choking out the words as I say this, but like, we need an arbiter of bullshit. Like, we need a bullshit, not bullshit rule for bouncing off the bag for a fraction of a second versus, you you know, the trap rule or whatever. Instead of having to... To write some, you know, write a new rule that that Joe Madden and Terry Francona are going to figure out in the first week of the next season, and it'll just be a new thing that'll annoy us every single year. There's just no way to do this completely objectively. Like when mm-hmm. you try to, there are just some things that are just ill suited to to chasing down with objective truth, and you know, 
I'm willing to to sacrifice that because it's baseball and on some level, who cares? But we're just never going to trust the system anymore. I didn't realize you were such a big man on campus. It, it, so I <laughs> I won this election. I didn't put up a single poster, but my name was first on the ballot. And when uh, I got to when I got to grad school, I, I learned about ballot order stuff like that and you know I, there's a hundred percent chance that i won uh that election because my last name starts with ba could have been charisma it was definitely not charisma <laughs> all right so yeah i mean defenders of the way replay is working right now will say well just slide better if you are coming oh, off the bag <laughs> then you are not sliding well and you should slide in such a way that you won't come off the bag and and okay, I mean, there is something to the idea of proper sliding technique, and you you don't want to go past the bag, but we're not talking about going past the bag. We're talking about just, you know, part of your body just not touching the bag, even though most of your body is directly over the bag, and you've already touched the bag. So it's not really that, and you can make a case or that they say just... slide head first, so you you know you can keep your hand on the bag. But then Javi yeah. Baez slid head first, and he almost brained himself yes. on Joe Panic's knee. Right, I've seen people suggest sliding feet first too, but we've seen examples, you know, like the Terrence Gore one you mentioned, yeah. which is feet first, and and this still happens. And the do better thing is just so tiresome. <laughs> I think there's a case to be made that this is just the way physics works, and we can't really change physics and the laws of the universe dictate that a full-grown man running at full speed at this base is just not completely in control of his ability to be entirely in contact with it at all times. And so this is to some degree inevitable. Now, if you come up with some counter proposal like Dave Cameron's, for instance, that, you know, you just have to be over the base and there's sort of a, a safe zone once you've already touched the base. If you're directly over it, then it doesn't actually matter if you're touching it. And and you could imagine that maybe there could be unintended consequences to something like that. You know, maybe suddenly you'll have guys barreling in really hard in kind of an uncontrolled way because they aren't quite as worried about maintaining contact with the bag. And so maybe you have a dangerous situation developed there where fielders are getting taken out. So everything you do, there is some consequences that, that comes of that. And every time you add a rule, the rule is imperfect and we'll wind up zooming in like the camera from powers of 10 until we <laughs> just examine the distance between the spikes and the base on a microscopic level. Like we just right. need a, we just need a benevolent dictator of, of replay just to tell us <laughs> yeah. what is what is fair and what's not right or you know if we're just talking about this from the perspective of what's in the best interest of baseball then just as we were saying earlier that maybe having every team prevent hits the way the cubs do would be bad for baseball then it's also maybe bad for baseball for runners to get thrown out because we like having base runners and there are few enough balls in play in this high strikeout era anyway for us to sacrifice many of those guys getting to second and third because some segment of their body was not in complete contact at all times with the bag. And so we are just finding another way to decrease offense and work in the favor of defenses. And maybe that is not in the best interest of baseball. So if only if only for the purpose of increasing offense and making the game more exciting, it might be worth changing this rule, even if it's not a, a philosophical stance. 
All right. So just quickly before we wrap up, we saw David Price make yet another shaky postseason start, his ninth, I believe. We will not be seeing him pitch again because the Red Sox were eliminated. We may be seeing Clayton well, we Kershaw. Will someday. Yes, but... <laughs> someday. Someday. And uh, the Red Sox would be happy to have another David Price postseason start if it meant that they could continue to play postseason games. But that won't happen. We might still see another Clayton Kershaw start. And he, of course, was kind of in the same bucket as Price coming into October as an ace, the best pitcher in baseball, or one of the best pitchers in baseball in Price's case, who has just a, a fairly lackluster postseason resume and has been good at times and, you know, has peripherals that match up with the regular season peripherals, but the results just haven't been there for the most part up to their usual level. And Clayton Kershaw won his start, or the Dodgers won that game. It's the only game they've won in the series so far. But he was laboring, and he was not dominant Clayton yeah. Kershaw. He was struggling to get through that game, and he did because he's great. But this was not the guy we were waiting to see. And so that's opened up another round of discussion about why this has happened. Is there something in the Kershaw price mentality that is not suited for October? And I, you know, I don't want to be dogmatic saber boy about this and just cry small sample and say, you know, it's nine starts over seven years or eight years or whatever it is. And we can't really read too much into it. You know, I'm willing to entertain the idea that there is something different about the way these guys have pitched and it it doesn't really show up in their strikeout or walk rates it kind of shows up in their power allowed david price has certainly allowed higher slugging percentages and more home runs in the postseason and the question is just whether that is better hitters combined with small sample or whether there is something inside David Price that just flips into postseason mode and suddenly he's no longer as effective. And I don't know that there's a definitive way to answer this question other than hoping that they continue to pitch in the postseason and give us a larger sample of performance. But do you have any thoughts from watching them? Have any yeah. deep-seated suspicions? If you if you wanted to be dogmatic Sabre Boy, I'd, I'd back you up on it because it just, uh -huh. you know, it's tough to i mean you're facing better lineups you're facing right. a team that is as we learned from alex zumwalt last week just pouring over in most cases every single pitch that you've thrown over the the past six weeks yes and in price's case specifically yeah yeah zumwalt mentioned the change up tell that he perhaps had prior to this season so that's something that maybe regular season teams weren't taking advantage of, and and then they did in the postseason. And so it's not that Price was choking so much as it was that his opponents were better prepared. And I, you know, I don't have Brooks baseball up in front of me, but it, you know, it feels like Kershaw might have been amped up to the point where like he was missing his spots, but the the stuff looked like the breaking stuff was breaking really hard. He was throwing ninety six, ninety seven, you know, well into the second time through the order. You know, I wonder if, you know, maybe maybe got amped up and started overthrowing. But at the mm -hmm. same time, like I'm hesitant to go down this road just because the it so quickly turns into you stop looking for actual evidence and it turns into these guys aren't clutch. And right. I don't know. That means we shouldn't be asking these questions. But at this point, I, you know, I just feel bad for Price in particular because yeah. I feel like you, you should have won one by accident by now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's sort of ironic because Price kind of came onto the scene as a, a postseason pitcher. We'd barely seen him before his October relief appearances in 2008 when he looked like this great playoff mm -hmm. weapon. 
And so no one would have expected that things would turn out this way. And yeah, I mean, if there is something that they are doing differently, I, I wouldn't call it unclutchness or, you know, some weakness of character. I mean, Clayton Kershaw is a robot. He is uh, just amazing and incredibly well-prepared. And I find it extremely hard to believe that either of these guys suddenly just, you know, loses their will. Particularly by now. Like these guys are, they've been around forever. Yeah. I mean, these are veterans. They're incredibly accomplished and successful and seem to be guys who, you know, to the extent that we can tell from afar, have that kind of iron will that you have to have to succeed in the major leagues and that I believe most major league players have. And so I don't really believe that they are suddenly getting scared or overwhelmed by the situation. If anything, what you said earlier could be an explanation. If you want to reach for some something that is rooted in their psyches, you could say that they care too much and, you know, they feel so much responsibility for winning their team's games that they put too much pressure on themselves or, you know, whatever it is, they're trying too hard, uh, which in a sense, I guess, would be a a form of unclutchness if it is actually affecting your performance. But it's not as if, you know, you have to be shaking on the mound. You you could just allow yourself to get out of your regular rhythm for for any reason. and, And you could call that unclutchness. But yeah, I, I mean, until there is really a, a more significant sample, and it's not nothing that we've seen so far, but, you know, it's just a, a couple starts a year over this long period against good opponents who are trying to pick up on every little weakness you have. So I, I just, you know, if I were a Dodgers fan, I would be feeling pretty good about having Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, and I mean, there are usage, pa- usage pattern problems, like, you know, we're where Price, you know, last year was warming up the bullpen all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, coming out or he came out of the bullpen in that uh that game for the ALDS and Kershaw's gone on short rest. And, you know, it looks like he'd been left in too long. A certain, you know, uh, was this last year? You know, it was two years ago again. Right. Against the Dodgers the Cardinals. had no bullpen. Yeah. So. They, you know, so who else is going to. So he was throwing in a situation where a lesser pitcher might not have been. And, you know, I don't know if it. If this sounds like making excuses, but, you know, because of the, the high expectations surrounding these guys, you know, maybe the, their failure, not only do their failures stick out more, but they're put in a position to fail way more often than someone who might just, you know, like Jeremy Guthrie's not going to go third time through the order on short rest in right. a, in a do or die game. Right. Okay. So I think we will wrap up there. We will continue to see how the postseason develops. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me as always. Yeah. And thanks to the listeners for listening. We will be back with another episode of the Ringer MLB show on Friday. 